We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to each and every one. I welcome you in from the hallway. If you want to come in and find a seat, don't be shy to do that. We have plenty of seats up in the front. They're the best seats in the house. Yeah, Becky always gets the second row there. There is one reserved. I see a Bible there. Must be yours. You've already scoped out your spot. That's your seat. Okay, very good. Our scripture reading will be somewhat difficult today in Ezekiel 48. But before we get there, you can turn your Bibles to it to follow along. I just wanted to spend one moment to acknowledge something in our church's history that happened this day and yesterday, seven years ago. We uh, experienced the great grief of one of our young, dear ones, 17 years old, going to be with the Lord prematurely, and that was Hayden Smith. That tragedy deeply, obviously, affected the Smith family, and we want to tell them, although none of them are here today, that we do remember them. We remember them in prayer, and we love them. It also deeply affected my own family, my boys, myself, my wife, and uh, many, many of you as well. Um, I saw Remembrance photos published this week, and it's just one of those things that, you know, we question and we ask God why, and we wonder why did it have to happen. We don't know those things. But we know the God who knows those things, and we can trust him. We don't know what joys or tragedies might befall us in the days ahead, but we know God, and we trust in him to do the best. The righteous judge of all the earth always does that which is right. And so although we had that tragedy, and it's had a lot of collateral damage, um, we trust God still. We're not going to let that go. God is still good. He's still on his throne. He's still in charge of everything. And uh, we have to believe that God's plan is the best plan. There is no substandard part of God's plan. So let us us, uh, fix that in our minds and uh, thank God. Let me just pray. Father, also at this time of the year, we... Remember the, with grief the homegoing of a number of other of our associates or members here in the church. Over the springs and summers of the last seven years, we've had a number who have left us. And this, just the most notable for its tragic nature, we pray, Lord, for the Smith family today, each and every one, for Bill, for Andy, for Hope and for Carter, for the extended family, and for all of us here who experienced that great grief. And, and Lord, I pray that it will not 
serve to drive us away into anger or doubt or disbelief or denial or hatred or anything of that nature, but rather that it would be served to that it would serve to draw us closer to yourself, even now, as we process the emotions that came upon us seven years ago, yesterday afternoon, and then the next day, Saturday, and that whole weekend, which was of of all days, some of the most terrible that we have experienced. So, Father, we commend that to you. Help us to move ahead, great trust in our God and King, the sovereign of the universe who does all things well. We don't understand, but, Lord, we acknowledge happily we don't have to understand. We're finite. We're your creatures. You are infinite, and you are the creator. Thank you for teaching us this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel 48, please. Talking about the division of the land now. And uh, just note the division of the um, land, how it's done, and compare it in your mind to what you remember from before when the land was divided. Some, by the way, I was reading a Jewish commentator on this passage, and uh, it was interesting because uh, he doesn't take this literally. He doesn't take that this is going to actually occur in the future. He basically said this is symbolic of uh, a democratic form of government. Now, that's an example of trying to find something you want to find in the text of Scripture. What this is is the culmination of the Lord's plan for the nation of Israel that when Jesus returns and is king, the land will be laid out such, the temple and tabernacle will be laid out in such a way, the priests, the Levites will have their place, the nation will exist in all their places, and it will be a a highly updated and improved version of the temple that uh, was created in Solomon's day. That's what's going on here. This is yet to come. Ezekiel 48. Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon at the entrance of Hamath to Hazar Enon, the border of Damascus northward, In the direction of Hamath, there shall be one section for Dan from its east to its west. By the border of Dan from the east side to the west, one section for Asher. So notice in your mind's eye, we're starting at the north section of Israel, and we have a strip of land from the sea all the way to the uh, eastern border. That is for Dan. Then below that is for Asher. By the border of Asher from the east side to the west, again, another strip of land, one section for Naphtali. By the border of Naphtali from the east to the west, one section for Manasseh. By the border of Manasseh from the east side to the west, one section for Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim was way up in the north before. Now they're they're moving down a little bit. By the border of Ephraim from the east side to the west, one section for Reuben. Interesting that Reuben shows up again, isn't it? By the border of Reuben from the east side to the west, one section for Judah. By the border of Judah from the east side to the west, here's another strip, shall be the district which you shall set apart, 25,000 cubits in width and in length the same as one of the other portions, from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the center. Now how many tribes was that that we've already gone through? Somebody keep, somebody keep count of that? It was seven, I believe. And then we have the special section that's marked off for the temple and all that stuff, and then there'll be five more tribes south of there. So that's the arrangement. Notice that Judah is to the north of 
the capital here in the, in the temple. Verse number 9, The district that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. To these, to the priests, the holy district shall belong. On north, 25,000 cubits in length. On the west, 10,000 in, uh, in width. On the east, 10,000 in width. And on the south, 25,000 in length. The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the center. You can probably, I know you can find online a drawing of this, but maybe you'd like to draw that out for me. Show us what it would look like. It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok who are sanctified, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. And this district of land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. Opposite the border of the priests, the Levites shall have an area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. Its entire length shall be 25,000 and its width 10,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They may not alienate this best part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 shall be for general use by the city for dwellings and common land, and the city shall be in the center. These shall be its measurements, the north side 4,500 cubits, the south side 4,500, the east side 4,500, and the west side 4,500. The common land of the city shall be to the north 250 cubits, to the south 250, to the east 250, to the west 250. The rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section, and its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. The workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. The entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits, four square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. The rest shall belong to the prince on one side and on the other of the holy district and of the city's property next to the 25,000 cubits of the holy district as far as the eastern border and westward next to the 25,000 as far as the western border adjacent to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the prince. It shall be the holy district and the sanctuary of the temple shall be in the center. Moreover, Apart from the possession of the Levites and the possession of the city, which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. As for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, Benjamin shall have one section. By the border of Benjamin from the east side to the west, Simeon shall have one section. By the border of Simeon and from the east side to the west, Issachar shall have one section. By the border of Issachar from the east side to the west, Zebulun shall have one section. By the border of Zebulun from the east side to the west, Gad shall have one section. By the border of Gad on the south side toward the south, the border that is toward the Negev as it's called, the border shall be from Timar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. These, and these are their portions, says the Lord God. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one for Judah, one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, and one gate for Dan. 
on the south side measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one for Asher, and one for Naphtali. Was there a tribe omitted for the gates? What's that? Was Reuben left out of the gate, uh, the list of gates? He's up in verse 31. Uh, there's Levi there. Very good. All the way around, verse 35, shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Check out those uh, gates and tribes, and uh, sometime if it's interest to you, you might list out the tribes of Israel uh, in the various listings that they come, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, see what you find there. Reuben disappeared for a while, didn't he? He's come back here. You have the two for Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. You have the issue with Levi and the special inheritance that they received and, and that sort of thing. Well, we finally made it reading all the way through the book of Ezekiel. That was a task, wasn't it? it took a long time, 48 probably 50 weeks because we took a couple chapters um, and split them in two. As you can see from the notes in your bulletin, um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Old Testament again to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis this morning in the first chapter, in the beginning, the Hebrew word is bereshit, bereshit bara Elohim, et hachshamayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything, and our truth today is that God rules everything. I'm thinking about taking us through a series in the book of Genesis, and I thought I'd dip our toes in here. Um, I don't anticipate going through the entire book in one sitting, so to speak, in one series. It's very long. I might take chapters 1 through 12, uh, summarize some in the middle of the book and go to the end, chapters 37 to 50 or something. We'll see uh, how it goes. I do have a goal to preach through it eventually. I've actually taught through Genesis on Wednesday night some time ago, but as I was looking at my list of books now that I've finished Jonah and Nahum, uh, I think this is a crucial book because it lays foundations for us as Christians and for the world. Um, I have preached through most of the New Testament books already, uh, there's a couple of Gospels that I haven't gone through uh, thoroughly. Uh, we're finishing Matthew in the next few months. Uh, Luke, and I don't think I've taught all the way through Luke. I'm pretty sure I've taught all the way through Mark on Wednesday nights, and I've taught John several times in different contexts. So those are the only books that would be uh, books that I might have missed, so to speak, for Sunday morning exposition. But um, in any case... We go to Genesis 1, and really it's chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. It forms the first segment of the book. The book of Genesis is critical to our understanding of the way that things really are. If you don't have Genesis, then you're going to be awfully confused about how the world works and, uh, and what it's all about. There's a, a cute title of a book that is, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Well... Um, and, and that book has some very good points, by the way. But if that's true, then it's all the more true that all you need to understand the world is Genesis, the very book of beginnings. The book teaches us about God. It teaches us about creation, uh, man, 
evil, Satan, faith, redemption, providence, immorality, and a bevy of other topics. It recounts early earth history, which no one else can do, by the way. There's, there's mythology, there's speculation, there's made-up stories, but here are words of the eyewitness who started it all together. talks about the origin of people groups, where did languages come from, uh, why do we have a work week, and the genesis of the Jewish nation. And really, that's where it's driving, because it's the opening book of the Pentateuch, trying to help the people of Israel understand where did we come from. And so by chapter 12, you see the calling of Abraham, the formation of the nascent Hebrew nation, uh, the forefathers, then you see the kind of early history. How did we end up in Egypt? A child might ask their mom or dad in Israel's history, and they would be able to say, well, let's look at this and read this in a synagogue or read it at home, and you'll see how we got to Egypt with Joseph in chapters 37 to 50 and what happened to us after that point. The key term for understanding the high-level structure of the book is the word history or generations. Um, You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This word is from the Hebrew word toledot, which occurs, I think it is, did I say yeah, here, 13 times in the book of Genesis, divides it into 10 or 11 major sections. Really, this first is introductory, but it's because chapter 2-4 uses the word toledot there, we could kind of divide off the first chapter and first few verses of chapter 2 as its own segment. Um, this is important to the Jewish people. In fact, it was important to uh, all ancient peoples, really. Uh, to pass on their history was essential because it taught them who they were. A lot of talk today about identity and uh, who you are and and all of that. Well, uh, who you are does depend a lot on where you came from, and it's important to know that history. Uh, We kind of, you know, poo-poo history. People want to forget history. They want to teach how things should be, not how things were and how people thought about them before. But if you do that, you really are doomed because you won't be able to stand on the shoulders of those experiences before and make any kind of progress. You're going to repeat all the past mistakes and all of that. Um, So there are 13 uses, 11 major sections. You ask, what about the other uses of the word? There are a couple of them in the middle of the sections there. I've listed those for you uh, in the the outline segment of the uh, notes there. And uh, what I'll do is just run through quickly the structure of the book. And if you keep these headings in mind, then you'll be in good shape as you study the book of Genesis and read it. You first start with creation and then a re-accounting of the history of creation and through the fall of Cain and the murder of Abel. And then we move on to a history of Adam's family through the spread of evil in chapter 5 and 6. And then in chapter 6 through 9, it's Noah. It's the history of Noah and his family, the Toledot, the generations of. And then you have Noah's sons and the table of nations and the Tower of Babel. That's chapters 10 to 11. We're covering uh, over 2,000 years of earth history just in those 11 chapters. We, call, we see the call of Abraham. Uh, you see Shem and, and Terah's family in the latter part of chapter 11 and then chapter 12 through 25, the history of 
Terah's family through Abraham. And uh, that takes us up to roughly 2000 or 1800 B.C. Uh, Then we have, actually not quite 1800 B.C. And then we have the history of Esau's family, the Edomites. Uh, Sorry, I skipped the history of Isaac's family. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Esau as well, and then we have Jacob's family. And the main character there is Joseph in chapters 37 to the end of the book. So that kind of shows you that even though the book is large, it's 50 chapters, it's not really that imposing. It's following God's creation and the family from Abraham on down uh, to the nation of Israel as it exists in Egypt and being ready for the Exodus in the book of Exodus. Now, what do we learn about God in creation? Since we're in the creation chapter here, we learn something about him by looking at his creation. You can tell something about the designer if you look at his design. You can tell something about the architect if you look at his architecture. You can tell something about the engineer if you look at his engineering. You can tell something about the artist by looking at his art. You can tell something about God by looking at everything that he made. Romans 1, 18 to 20 explains that the eternal power and divine nature of God are evidenced by the things that are made and have been so since the dawn of creation. Everybody can see that God exists, that he is eternally powerful, and of his divine nature by looking at what has been made in the large, the cosmos, and in the small, in the smallest things that we can understand, and even within our conscience. God has placed there a knowledge of right and wrong, a basic knowledge, a a function of of being able to accuse or defend. We see that in Romans chapter 2 and elsewhere. We can see the marvelous wisdom of the divine nature in what he has made. And I, I often think about this when I, when I come to the topic of creation because if I think about how beautiful and complex the creation is from what my eyes can see, we were privileged to be able to see some more of that creation a couple weeks ago when we took a trip out west. But if you think about how beautiful and complex the creation is, Remember that what we see today came to us from an original creation that was damaged by sin, scoured by the flood, and then variously devastated by millennia of human mismanagement and war. What we're looking at is the result of that. And yet it retains a measure of beauty and of awe and majesty because of what God has created. Of course, there is some beautification by the work of humanity and the restorative powers built into nature. I mean, the, uh, the environment does, in a way, clean itself. People build beautiful edifices and uh, adorn gardens and things. So there's not just human devastation, but there's also, we hope, human improvement. And your corner of the world can be one of those, your corner of God's vineyard, where you do some improvements and beautify the work that God has done. If what remains, though, that we see with our eyes today after all of that damage was done, imagine the glorious creation in its original state without the flood, without human devastation, without the fall into sin. Imagine how beautiful 
and how wonderful that was and how much more glorious it will be when the Lord Jesus returns and reigns on the earth and later recreates the world in perfect righteousness. Just imagine the awe and the wonder of that. When you enter into the kingdom after you're raptured or resurrected or when you enter into the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, I can only think, imagine that you will just be in awe and just have to take it in for a while and just look around and see. And there'll be no end of seeing and enjoying the glories of God and his perfect creation there in the future. Those glories of creation, unfortunately, are often the focus of mankind's eyes who divert their attention away from the creator to the creation, making the creation into an idol as those who worship the sun or the moon or worship various animal-like deities, figments of their imagination empowered by demons. But the creation is supposed to point us to the creator. Let me remind you of one of the worship psalms of Israel that reminds us of this truth. It's in the 19th of the Psalms. And the text of the psalm says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Can you just think about that for a minute? When's the last time you went out in the deep dark of night and you looked at what God has made? Night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Then it talks about him, God setting a tabernacle for the sun, a place for the sun to reside and to go about on its rotational schedule, so to speak, as we know the earth rotates, but from the language of appearance, the sun seems to come and go. This is the glory of our God and how he has made all things well. Now, let me just say a few things about what we believe about the book of Genesis here at Fellowship Bible Church. You will, uh, if you're new to the church or Christianity even, wonder what Christians believe. We start in Genesis. Um, We believe, first of all, that the Word of God is inerrant. It's infallible. It's authoritative from the very first words in Genesis. Now, just to give you a little background or remind you of my own background, I am a Ph.D.-level science student. I have uh, achieved that level of uh, education, and uh, besides that, a couple of master's degrees. And I'm not appealing to myself as an authority. I'm just giving you myself as an example of somebody who's highly trained in the uh, modern arts of engineering and science, and I believe the Bible is literally true. Now, there are a lot of people who don't believe that. They appeal to other authorities, but we cannot appeal to any other authority than God, ultimately, who is the authority on this matter. We believe that the Bible is without error in its original writings. doesn't mean the translations can't be improved. They can. Uh, oftentimes, we believe the scriptures are infallible, incapable of failing. The word of God cannot fail. 
and authoritative from the very first words in Genesis. Sadly, I have to say, there are many people professing Christians, and some of them are Christians, some of them are merely professing Christians, who look at Genesis in chapters 1 and 2 and maybe 3 and, and who knows how long down the line, and they say, no, nah, it's not really how it was. We know better now because we have science on our side. The question is, when does the Bible become authoritative? For us, it's at Genesis 1-1, the first word. For others, evidently the authority and inerrancy kick in some later time, maybe chapter 3 or chapter 12 or something like that. That's, that's insufferable to us. The reason that it's insufferable is that if you've got ages and ages of death before sin entered the world or death before humans ever came on the planet, Romans chapter 5 is dead wrong. Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world and death through sin. That is the gospel, my friends. That is the core basic teaching that starts us off to understand that man is sinful and needs a savior. And the consequences of sin is death. If you take and shoehorn evolution into this book, you've taken the gospel apart at the seams. But it seems most people don't understand that. Most people who take this to be poetry or figurative speech or something like that, and they take the gap theory or day age or framework or whatever, and, and they turn it upside down so that it doesn't mean what it says, and they don't realize that what they're doing is they're taking the gospel apart from the very foundation stones. You can't do that. You cannot do that. The book of Genesis is a straightforward narrative. We believe the book according to the plain literal school of interpretation. What I, what I would rather say these days, which I think is a good way to say it, is that we believe in an originalist interpretation of the Bible. That is, what did it originally mean when God wrote it through Moses? So an originalist uh, position. Now, there, I, I, I kind of gave you my credentials there, and I've said this. There's, there's a lot there. Talk to me sometime if you want about it, but I am fully convinced that the Word of God is, as it says in this text, accurate to what actually happened. God created all things. He did throw, so through the agency of His Son. We see that in Colossians and John chapter 1. Uh, we know Him as the man, God-man Jesus Christ and with the assistance of his spirit. You, saw, you will see that if you read the first verses there. It says in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All three members of the triune God were involved in the creation and continue to be involved throughout all of the history recorded in Genesis and then up to this day as well. Now, furthermore, we do not believe in macroevolution. That is, molecules to man Evolution. Said another way, we believe that random mutations do not add information to the genome and thus cannot create a new species. You look at random mutations, they almost always subtract information, take it away, damage it, destroy it, cause cancer, that sort of thing. We do not believe that a monkey became a man. Microevolution is indeed built into the creation. You heard that correctly? Microevolution? 
is built into the creation by God to allow the species to adapt to their surroundings. That's part of God's wise design. But species changing to another species is not part of God's design. He created the, the species or loosely kinds. Kinds are not exactly the same level as species, but you get the idea. He created those kinds to reproduce after their kind, and they wouldn't cross over and, and, uh, and reproduce with other kinds. We also do not believe that the earth and the universe is millions or billions of years old. The creation is relatively recent, only thousands of years, not millions or billions. Why that is will become evident as we get further into the study in the book of Genesis, but suffice it for now to say that is a foundational principle that we have gleaned from the scriptures and from our understanding of, of all that comes to us, all the data that we have available. We believe that God personally created the earth and the cosmos for his glory and for the good of his creation. He graciously granted mankind to be steward over his creation, but we failed in that task. So in summary, we believe God created everything out of nothing in six days and ceased from creation on the seventh day or just before the start of the seventh day. This is why our work week is seven days long. You ever wonder that, why we have a week that's seven and not eight or six or ten or twelve? because of this. This is the foundation of it. Um, and all attempts to uh, you know, make the work week into a decimal system and have 10 days or a year to have 10 months or something like that just have failed. Uh, it it's not going to work. We'll retain that. By the way, that's why we retain Sunday as the first day of the week, because that's what it is. Um, I do resist starting my week calendar on Monday. But people do, are doing that today. They're having Monday through Friday, and then the weekend, they take a Saturday and Sunday, put that at the end of the week. But that's not the original design that God set in order for us. Um, the very pinnacle of creation was man and woman. The first ones, Adam and Eve. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground, and Eve was created out of Adam. They were real people. Now, I say that, and you say, what? Well, Obviously, they're real people. To you, that's obvious. But there are professing Christian theologians who will say Adam and Eve are representative of a race of hominids that came up from the apes, and they're prototypical or something of that nature. They're not literal people. They were real people that God directed to keep the Garden of Eden, to manage the entire world, and to fill it with humanity. He gave them one prohibition. Don't eat of that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that. But, you know, they had free access to the tree of life up until that point and all the other fruitful trees that were there in the garden. So God executed several creative acts, which are summarized in the following points in your notes. This is Roman numeral four. And we'll just kind of run through this quickly. I think we're going to run out of time before we, we get through this, but I'll start anyway. Um, we start out with day one. And what we have is like when you build a house, what do you, you start with the foundation and uh, you put the, the uh, joists on there and the floorboards, and then what do you set up? Some walls and put some trusses. You've got a roughed, a rough house, a roughed-in house, we could say. And you close it in, of course, dry it in, and windows and doors and all that. But nothing on the inside is formed or filled. 
Nobody's living there, no furniture there, no floor coverings there, no paint on the walls, no, no fixtures, no, no lights and chandeliers and fans and cabinets and all of that. What we have here is an unformed and unfilled world with a vast sea and a light source. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was unformed and unfilled, or without form and void. And darkness was on or over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, we don't believe that God did this in eons past, followed by a long intermission before the events of verse 2 occurred. That belief is called the gap theory. That is, God created everything in the unformed state, uh, the initial state, and then there's a big gap of billions of years, and then God continued his creative activity. That was a commonly held theory to try to reconcile the Bible with science. We have recognized those of us that follow in the school, from the school of thought where that was popular, early dispensationalism, we have recognized that that is not an appropriate approach to the scriptures. We don't try to harmonize the Bible t- to science. If anything, you, re- you harmonize science to the Bible. To the Bible. Okay? But in any case, uh, there is no gap. How do we know there's no gap? Well, do you believe your Bible? What does Exodus 31 say? Verse 17. Well, let's look. Let us see what it says here. Exodus 31 and verse number 17. It says this. Speaking of the Sabbath, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. By the way, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Text here tells us that God made the heavens and the earth in six days. I believe that. He could have made it in six seconds. He could have made it in 6,000 years. But the text tells us he made it in six days. If you don't believe that, then let's look at the Ten Commandments for a moment. You know where to find those in the book of Exodus, don't you? Exodus, if you don't know where to find the Ten Commandments, may I shame you? You should know where to find the Ten Commandments. If not in Deuteronomy 5, then find them in Exodus chapter 20, where they're originally recorded. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 11. Now this is the seventh day being the Sabbath. You shall do no work on it. That's verse 10. Verse 11 says, here's why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and what? All that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified or hallowed it or set it apart for the use of God's people to rest. Now, what did God not make in those six days? Trick question. There was not anything that he 
didn't make on those six days. He made everything on those six days. The question often arises, well, what about the angels? Didn't they exist forever before? No. The Bible says the Lord made the heavens. Who lives in the heavens? The angels, the sea, the earth, and all that is in them. Everything in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and in the sea was made by God in those six days. Now, we believe, I believe the angels were created in the opening moments of the first day of creation. They then, as Job 38.7 reports, rejoiced to see God hanging the earth on nothing, creating the stars and everything else. They were there to observe his creation. Very clear in the scriptures, isn't it, that God made everything in six days. You can either take that word or you can take the word of the scientists. I'll take God at his word every time. That's why the Jewish people were instructed, by the way, to work six days and rest the seventh because of this pattern of creation. Everything was made. Heaven, angels, demons. They were angels. They fell later on after the first week of creation. Notice how the word of God guides our beliefs here in this church and many like-minded churches, the Word of God is the guide to our belief. An appeal to any other authority is incorrect because, for one thing, those authorities weren't present. They, don't, they weren't there as eyewitnesses. They did not design the creation. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. Only God is all of those things. Now, the light that was created in chapter 1, it says, and there was... Uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light. There's no sun yet. There's no moon. There's no stars. So um, I like to picture this like when you're, if you're building a house or you're in your garage and you don't have a lot of good lights there, you plug in a temporary light source, a trouble light, or one of those fancy halogen, you know, really bright lights or the new LED things. That's your work light. God turned on the work light. Now, we also believe... It's not explicitly stated here, but that light simply may have been a, the, a, the resplendent glory of God being shined out into the, the new creation. I mean, God didn't exist in space and time before this, so he creates space and time and the heavens and the earth, and then his glory shines into them. So that's what happened. And, and then he uh, has this cycle starting, evidently, the earth is already moving, and you've got the source of light shining on it, and you've got the day-night cycle beginning. That's day one. By the way, that's why we believe that the creation is as it, not only from Exodus, but also here. We have evening and morning, and you have the first day. This is not a, the first age. This is not the first eon. This is not the first epic, the first era. This is the first day. Then day two, he created or, or kind of, we could say, outfitted the heavens. Verses six through eight, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under that firmament from the waters which were above, and it was so. Now, this is difficult to understand exactly what it means. I refer you to a paper by Terry Mortensen that answers in Genesis, which is about 20, 22 pages of material in which he seeks to answer this question and, very, and does a very good job. 
basically, um, God took the heavens from verse 1 and, and kind of differentiated them or specialized them into th- uh, several segments. He took the waters below and the waters above and stretched them out, and in between was created a firmament. Um, the birds flew on the face of that firmament. The atmosphere is, is that firmament. The uh, interstellar space is in that firmament. And then perhaps also the dwelling place of God, the third heaven, as we call it, where God dwells. Picture the earth, if we could do it in two dimensions, picture this with a hole in the center. This is a donut. And the earth is the center of that donut, the, the, the hole, okay, in the donut. The firmament is the donut itself. It's that which exists on the border of the earth and above, okay? Now, it's, of course, not a two-dimensional, you know, picture. It's a three-dimensional sphere. It's a sphere. It's a donut sphere with a hole cut out of the center of it. Um, I'd like to see somebody try to make one of those sometime. I'm sure some, uh, some skilled confectioner can make it happen. Not just a donut like this, but a ball with a hole cut out of the center. Well, anyway, that's a good illustration of this, the, the, the uh, firmament, the stuff above and outside of the earth. There's some kind of layer of water above and outside of the outer surface of the donut. How that works exactly is not clear to me. Some have suggested that you have the earth and the waters below, and then you have the, a canopy of water above. That has fallen onto hard times, that theory, amongst creationists today, and I don't personally hold to that. Others have suggested that the waters are outside the outer edge of the universe. I don't know about how that works, but there's some kind of separation that God has done to create this firmament. And the firmament, basically, you can equate to the heavens. When you look up, you're looking through the first layer of the firmament, the atmosphere, You see the birds flying there. You look up to the second layer of the firmament, which is where the stars dwell, and then, of course, we can't see beyond that. But somehow God created that on the second day of creation. Well, I'm going to have to stop there because we're over time, and if I get into this, we're going to be here forever. So I better not do that. Uh, Yeah, I've got more days to go, right? Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to look at the opening words of your book that introduce us to critical topics that we have to understand if, we're to, if we hope to have any kind of conversance with what is going on today in the world. Lord, help us to grasp what is said here. And more than that, since it's pretty easy to grasp, save for this firmament business, um, help us to believe what it says. Help us to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Help us to submit ourselves to the Creator, for you are worthy. You have created us, commanded us, guided us, provided all these things, and we ought to follow you because of that. Help us to do so and not to be uh, stubborn or uh, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, but to trust in you and in your word. And uh, Lord, we know coming to it this way that it will be extremely unpopular, that we'll be looked at as 
backwards as scientifically illiterate, which is farthest thing from the truth, but we don't expect to be popular in our belief of the Bible, but we want to be faithful, not popular, faithful to you. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.